When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Premier League soccer season is heating up. Turn to Betting Weekly English Premier League on the Bet Rivers Network for the best bets and analysis for this week's features. Subscribe to Betting Weekly Premier League today wherever you get your podcast. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love Betting Weekly Game Bet Match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins, and I'm sat here as ever with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And with Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Barney. <laughs> Steady on, Jasper. Good morning, gentlemen. <laughs> Today's episode is a special tribute to the late Charlie Gillett, who died 10 years ago this month, and whose groundbreaking history, The Sound of the City, was published almost exactly 50 years ago not much of an exaggeration to say the Roxback pages probably wouldn't exist without that book, which yeah, was the, the first attempt to chronicle what Charlie called the rise of rock and roll, and the first book really to give historical weight to particularly American pop music that had never been taken very seriously so, up uh, to uh, that uh, point. I think that's right. Um, my brother gave me my copy in 1972 when I was 14, and it was a revelation. It taught me about all kinds of things I had no idea about particularly the nature of the independent American music business and how black music was essentially a creation of, of the independent labels. And it's, it's, it's fabulous. I believe he started as, as a thesis, is that correct? Yeah. I was just going to say, what a good big brother. <laughs> that's fantastic. I had a big it's brother. has been down all the way. That's true, yeah. I'm very glad that we get to record this episode then because we originally weren't slated to record at all this week. So no. It's a good thing that we I, are recording. I think we finished last week's episode by, by saying you were going to be mithering in Italy. but Clearly sad. not <laughs> mithering in Italy. <laughs> Hello, everyone. As opposed to mithering in Hammersmith. Yeah, Still mithering in Hammersmith, as usual. <laughs> In group isolation and Hammersmith. <laughs> I know, yes. We're, we're sort of, well, not exactly self-isolated. We're sort of trio-isolated uh, in right. the cupboard. Probably yes. never be allowed out of there. <laughs> this is episode 66, so just add one more six and we'll be in hell. So. Well, quite. Tomorrow's Friday the 13th. Tomorrow's so. Friday the 13th, so... <laughs> Shall we get back on track with Charlie yes. Gillett? Right, OK. <laughs> we, we veer off into the sort of satanic realm. <laughs> Yeah, so you talked about the thesis. So one of the things we're featuring free on the homepage is this great audio interview with Charlie from 1999 that Bill Brewster did. Mm -hmm. And Charlie pretty much tells his story. And it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, if you... If you care anything about Charlie Gillett or if you've read The Sound of the City, I learned a lot listening to this again. And so the story, I mean, this is an amazing story. I mean, he grew up in... Very, very humble beginnings in the northeast of England. I mean, literally in a kind of hamlet with no running water or electricity or anything. Wow. Very impoverished background. And yet went to Cambridge. Yeah. I think he studied economics of all things. <laughs> Might have helped him with his record company. But so he tells a story about how he ended up going to Columbia University yeah. on a post grad scheme. And 
essentially writing a thesis about the, the evolution of American popular music. And that then did, not in a seamless mm. way, but it did morph into this extraordinary book, The Sound yep. of the City, yep. which was published in 1970. And he talks about that. And in fact, we, we're going to feature a clip now of Charlie talking about The Sound of the City. So I came back to England then, resolved to try and turn this thing into a book. Wrote off over the next year or so to literally 15 different publishers, all of whom just said this kind of approach would be okay for jazz, but nobody wants to read a serious study of popular music. It's, it's an oxymoron. But I was still slogging away. Meanwhile, I got myself a column in Record Mirror. And Rolling Stone, which when it first came out, God, there's a whole bunch of people all as nutty as me. I wonder if I really felt the kind of brotherly empathy, empathy for Rolling Stone when it started. Yeah. And, um, and then there was a rumour that British Rolling Stone was going to be launched with Mick Jagger involved in some way. And I managed to organise an, an, an interview, a meeting with him, because he was deciding who was going to be the editor. Who Mick Jagger was or Jan Mick, Mick, Mick Jagger in England was going to be the one who decided who the editor was, because he was helping to finance the England end of Rolling Stone. So uh, I came to the meeting, sat around. After about an hour of waiting, he he came in, gave me the most cursory of glances, spoke to whoever else was in the office and walked out again. And that was my interview. I was so angry. So that kind of gave me a whole impetus again. I'll show these fuckers. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that that sums up Charlie, you know, not impressed by Mick Jagger. You know, Charlie was absolutely his own man. He had such integrity. He was never bedazzled by fame or anything. I I mean, you knew him quite well, didn't you, Barney? I I knew him a bit. I've met him quite a few times. And he was always absolutely charming. Yeah. But... If you said something he disagreed with, he would let you know. Oh, yes. I, I mean, I wouldn't say as, as much as, like, not suffering fools gladly, but he had a fairly low toleration for fools, shall I put it that way? You know? Yes, and never did it in a sort of shaming no. way. But, I mean, in fact, we're also featuring all the tributes that we pulled in ten years ago when Charlie died from a widespread of rock They're really lovely tributes, writers. actually. Mm. They really um, are. And, and, and some of them really made me chuckle. There's, there's, there's one that... Touches on precisely this point that Cheryl Garrett, who yeah. was then the editor of The Face, I think maybe when she was at City Limits, right. if she ever wrote anything, uh, made any kind of mistake, mm. she'd get an email from Charlie. <laughs> and, and, and I got emails from Charlie as well. You know, but it was never it was never meant to make no. you feel small. It's just he, he, he felt compelled yeah. to kind of correct uh, errors. He also had that pretty marvellous, on Radio London, BBC Radio London, for a long time, he had a show on The Honky Tonk Show. Um, our friend and colleague on Ruxback Pages, mm. Martin Colley, used to mm. actually work for Charlie on that. He used to answer the phones and things like that. Oh. Absolutely. And it was via that show that I got my copy of Bobby Charles's Bears album, for right. example. And we're going to get on to Johnny Allen later, yes. but, but Promised Land was this, this tune that he'd yeah. play over and over again. And it was a terrific show. I think he lost me... Latterly is when he did this big left turn into what one dubiously calls world music, but he certainly became particularly obsessed with African music and so on and so forth. Slightly lost me at that point. Not because I disliked the music, but it wasn't my music. No. It didn't speak to me in a particular way. But, yeah, you know, it was, it was a great show that he had there. there. He did become a real champion of quote-unquote world music, <laughs> and one of the three pieces. So in addition to pieces about Charlie, the three mm. pieces by Charlie, he's been on Rock's Back Pages 
mm. from the year dot. Yes. And we've been incredibly grateful for that. Such an important figure. There's this piece he wrote relatively late in his writing career about the genesis of the term world music. <laughs> um, and it's worth just briefly quoting. He said, in 1987, the owners of several British independent record labels convened a series of meetings in an Islington pub to discuss ways to get their records into shops. And then a little later, he says, we settled uneasily on <laughs> world music, <laughs> overriding the reservations of those who felt demeaned artists to lump African band leaders together with Pakistani devotional singers. So he admits yeah, it was, it's not ideal. Yeah. But, I mean, he, was, he became such a champion of um, particularly African music, I would say, but not exclusively. They, sure. He almost stopped listening to sort of Anglo-American... Yeah, yeah pop music and roots music. And in fact, <laughs> I have to read this as well because I got this email from Charlie after we assembled a list of the best albums of the noughties. I got this email. This must have been in the last year of his life. What an embarrassing, disgracefully white and inbred list this is. <laughs> Reminds me of the NME Top 100 albums back in 1972 when only two black albums made the list. It's not actually true. And I think he's talking about 75. Have we really not moved on even by an inch to embrace the rest of the world? He was very <laughs> sorry. I can't say I entirely disagree with him, actually. No, he's no. Got, he's certainly got a point there. Oh. He, he has got a point. I can't even remember what albums we made that list in the first place. No, but, nor can I. It's, no. it's, a, it's a long time ago. At don't, least don't 10 go and years look. Ago. <laughs> Nobody go look. But I mean, um, <laughs> let's I, just, I just seen them either, so. roll the tape backwards slightly in terms of, you know, before Charlie got into, you know, mm. quote unquote world music, what an eye opener the sound of the city was. I mean, yes. I, I, it just, it was like the sort of Bible of the American music business, how these particular styles and genres of music mm -hmm. had evolved from the 40s through yeah. to the, the end of the 60s. But also incredible detail about record labels and A&R men and yeah. producers yeah. and arrangers and session men. I mean, this was like, who knew? I mean, and even Grill Marcus, when he wrote his tribute, sent his tribute along about Charlie, he said, I mean, it made me feel so ignorant. Right, right. I mean, I was 14 when I read it. And this was a completely new world yeah. to me. You know, I, I had absolutely no idea about any of this stuff. It was possibly one of the, my gateway drugs into black music. Yeah. I mean, I'd always liked black music, but suddenly this sort of world opened up and stuff that I'd previously dismissed a bit in that slightly snobbish British blues sort of way, you know, horn sections, that that's cheese. You yeah. know, suddenly all of that sort of started evaporating. Yes. So, it, yeah, it was a really important book for me. Yeah, and I think so many people read it. it, it and, and along with his Honky Tonk show, I mean, yeah. he was so influential, yeah, yeah. but in such a self-effacing way. Someone used the word self-effacing. He was the opposite yeah. of an egomania. I, I mean, you know, he set up... Oval Records, yeah. which is also a publishing company and so on and so forth. He had bears some responsibility for the emergence of Dire Straits as a popular Yes, though no, he didn't profit from them becoming one of the biggest selling acts of I'm, the 80s. I'm going to do not. I'm actually going to take something from one of the articles which is going yeah. up into, into the library this week, yeah. which I was going to talk about later, but I'll talk yes. about it now. It's Paul Sexton writing about Paul Hardcastle, who had the big hit with 19. This or, is, no, 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 19. Indeed. Give it its full title. And, and the first couple of paragraphs is, Step back with me to November of 1982, and on a yellowing page in the Sol scrapbook, a letter yours truly from record business good guy Charlie Gillett, head of Oval Records. Dear Paul, I wanted to be interested to talk to Paul and Derek from First Light, who's 
AM is doing great work on the dance floors and airwaves and is selling too. For one year before that and two and a half years afterwards, one of those men mentioned that missive was making class dance music for those who knew and hoping writers would fit him into their schedules. Then along came 19 and suddenly he was fitting them into his. Yeah. So Charlie Gillett, one of the good guys, the <laughs> record so business Paul good guy. Paul Coulson, that, yes. Paul Coulson, that. Yeah. You know, was responsible for this extraordinary sort of electro proto-hip-hop yeah. sort of, you know... It's bizarre, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Should we go back to the beginning of the Oval story? Because I think the second sure. audio clip features Charlie talking about Oval and how that label was formed. And a friend of mine said, if you weren't doing these things, which seemed to me I was doing quite enough for one person, what, what else would you do? And I said, well, the only thing, other thing there is to do would be to run a record label. So why do we do that? So in the middle of all that, we, we 1972, we went down to... Um, Louisiana in search of material which for an album which which eventually came out as another Saturday night. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it was Cajun and Louisiana pop music. No, no, no. Which we eventually went out in nineteen seventy four. So we went we, you know, we went to Louisiana, looked for the material, found a company which licensed us to stuff to us on good terms, came back to England and uh, couldn't find anybody remotely interested in releasing it. But in the meantime, some a couple of the listeners my show and said, you must go and see this band called Kilburn and the High Roads. I went to see them. I thought they were really, really funny and good and just every, every all the kind of ba- barrier breaking that I was interested in, these guys did. You know, they, they would sing Twenty Tiny Fingers, the old Amber Cogan tune, and then yeah. go into something like Albert Isler's really hardcore modern jazz, yeah. just without blinking an eye. Uh, and this was Ian Dury's first yeah. band. So I went to see them, came back on the radio, said how good they were, went again, and about third or fourth time, I'm standing there, in those days a band would do a set, come off the stage, and then go back on again and do the second set, and in the interval, this bloke came up to me and said, boy, you keep saying how good we are on the radio, why don't you fucking manage us? <laughs> well, let's, we must assume that was Ian Dury himself. <laughs> so, I mean, that's another sort of feather in Charlie's cap. Yeah. Not that he would ever have been cut out for management, I don't think. But but, but he was the de facto manager of Ian Dury's yeah. first band for about a year. Which um, must have been pretty hard work, because they were an odd bunch of blokes, though, the <laughs> Kilburn and the High Roads, to put it mildly. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah. But so, so the, sorry, another Saturday night was sort of the birth of Swamp Pop as a phenomenon in Britain. Is that fair to say that he kind of brought Swamp Pop to Britain? In a way. So what you learn from listening to the audio interview, but also this piece we're featuring that he wrote for NME in late 1974, he describes how he went with his partner in Oval, Gordon, to Louisiana. Basically, they were trying to find something to release on this oval label that, that they'd started. And what I thought was fascinating was finding out that they went to New Orleans initially, couldn't really find anything, but he says, one night in a bar on Canal Street, I nearly tore the green gauze in the pool table when a version of Promised Land came on the jukebox featuring an accordion break where Chuck Berry, author of the song, had always played guitar. And it just, it blew his mind and... Long story short, they got in touch with Floyd Swallow of (laughs) Gin Records, based out in about, well, a couple of hundred miles from New Orleans, and they went out to meet Floyd. Were they in Lafayette? 
Uh, Villa Platte, uh-huh. Villa Platte, or V Platte, mm-hmm. if you were, if you were speaking French. But essentially, they did a deal with Floyd, and they put out this amazing compilation, which I still have my original copy of, mm-hmm. Another Saturday Night, which was all stuff that had been recorded there by Floyd Swallow, including Promised Land. Mm. To say that that was the birth of Swamp Pop, I mean, I think Swamp Pop probably existed as a term before that but this album i'm, I'm just saying to, yeah, for british audiences for british audiences hey jasper that's absolutely right yeah. i think it i think it was and i mean i think god i think i have something promised land uh, johnny allen's version of promised land is probably one of like, my favorite yeah, records ever it's I mean, absolutely fantastic it's such a sort of yeah, we were listening to it yesterday and it's beautiful it's just fabulous isn't it and the weird thing is it was it had been recorded in 1971, mm-hmm. so it didn't come out on that compilation until 74. And then and then it had this new traction in 1978 yep. when Stiff that's, put it out as a single, and right. it almost became a hit. They brought Johnny over. Yeah, which is when... Which the audio interview's done. We'll talk about that in a moment. We'll absolutely. hear a little bit of Johnny talking. But, I mean, I think Promised Land is... I mean, it was it was a huge record for, for so many people. Yeah. Uh, it's still... One of the greatest black rock and roll songs ever. If my home in North Virginia, California, on my mind, I'm But it was on the B side of a of a cover of a Merle Haggard song. Yeah. And it was only just, you know, Charlie just hearing it in this bar on Canal Street sure. that turned it into this absolute classic yeah. and resulted in Johnny, who was still essentially like a teacher. Yeah. <laughs> like, was it Anita Ward or someone that we you know who was like... Ring my bell, yes. Yeah, yes. like a teacher. That, that's you know, right, um, yeah. And then suddenly ring my bell was number one. <laughs> just a little bit like, not quite like that, but like, anyway. Because it, it wasn't hit. It, when, it was, uh, when Charlie first no. released it on Oval in 74 as a single... It wasn't a hit. Then he re-released it about a year later and it still wasn't a hit. Then in 78, they released, Stiff released it in conjunction with Over. Yeah. And it still wasn't a hit. Yeah. You know, just incredibly frustrating. It didn't sonically fit what radio, pop radio would play. Yeah. I think that, that's the simple problem. Yeah. You know? um, and one of the most extraordinary things about it, of course, is, I mean, he mentions the accordion solo. And it is, it is just that solo by Belton Richard. That's right. Who, who is also one of the artists on Another Saturday Night is one of the greatest yeah. things about it, I think. I mean, it was, it was great to see your response to it, Just. I think I had heard it before, but yeah. just sort of didn't necessarily take it in as anything other than yeah. a cover of that song. But, yeah. but actually listening to it properly, it's really yeah. got something. I think it's... And it's interesting because there's, there's another recording that he did of it that doesn't have anything like the same... That's right. ...anything like the same magic, and there's just something about that record. It was bottled lightning, it? Wasn't swings it? Like it really was. It I mean, absolutely yeah, that's the yeah, thing. Exactly. Rhythmically, it absolutely swings like the It's an interesting song. I mean, Chuck Berry's song's been covered by so many artists, it's not true. But this song has produced two great covers, yeah. the Johnny Allen one and Elvis Presley's, mm. which is... Just with a James Burton guitar solo, which makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. And yes. It's just great. It's great late album. Somebody help me get out of Louisiana. Just help me get to Houston town. There are people there who care a little about me and have let the poor boy down. Yeah. All I think is a sad thing, of course, is, is Elvis's version somewhat put paid well maybe to johnny's 
having any chance well, of success. But it's great that Elvis did it. Yeah. And, I mean, it is just... It's one of Chuck Berry's greatest songs. Yeah. I mean, almost tempted to just read a couple of lines from, from the <laughs> lyric because it's just pure kind of Americana yeah, poetry, yeah, 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 isn't yeah. it? I love that line about, I was on that midnight flyer out of Birmingham, smoking into New Orleans. Absolutely. Smoking into New Orleans. It's just gorgeous, yeah. isn't it? And I was on that midnight flyer out of Birmingham, smoking into New Orleans. I mean, we see a bit of a brief digression to Chuck Berry, but is there ever more frustrating artist who had so little regard for his own art mm. when he was one of the great American songwriters? Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. and yet he regarded the whole thing, the whole business, with utter contempt. Yeah. And it's just a huge disappointment. He turned out to be such an unpleasant man in yeah. so many respects. Yeah, yeah, completely. Just briefly, <laughs> before we actually hear the speaking voice of Johnny Allen, I wanted just to, to note... This piece from 1970, Charlie mentioned in the first clip we heard that he'd written for Record Mirror. Charlie was one of 134 British music journalists who were flown to New York to see Brinsley Schwartz <laughs> at the Fillmore East on a bill that also included Van Morrison and Quicksilver Messenger yeah, Service. Yeah, yeah. But so the Brinsleys were the first... Journalists. Talk about... It was one of the great kind of 70s hypes, yes. wasn't it? And they only just got there in time because the plane had had problems and they'd had to touch down in Ireland before <laughs> flying off. So they landed at JFK and immediately had to go yes. in, a, in a bus or several taxis to the Fillmore East or they would have missed the entire point of their being there. Yeah. But he's very <laughs> right. funny. I mean, he, he, his piece is very funny. It starts with something like, great lights, bad voice, terrible organ, same old guitar. My note, scribbled in the dark to record the first impression. So he's just arrived <laughs> and that's the first thing he writes down. And then he writes... Nicholas Lowe sings, <laughs> plays guitar, wears a Superman shirt and has a trick of nodding his head to make his hair cover his face. <laughs> I mean, this is a notorious... Just of interest to you in a way is a historical event. This is a notorious event, this, this whole mm. hype. Was it Fame Pushers was the management company? It was all these kind of slightly dubious blokes. Brinsley Schwartz were almost destroyed by this. They, yes. they were just taken to pieces in the press. Yes. Um, so they then retreated, you know, probably got it getting their heads together in the country or whatever it is, the bands in those days, and re-emerged as a, as a pub rock band a couple of years later. Yeah. And basically rebuilt their reputation from the ground up. That's right. And then eventually a chunk of them became Graham Parker's backing band, the rumour. And then Nick Lowe, of course, went on to mm. quite some notable success. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's admirable the way the Brinsley Schwartz kind of survived this... Fiasco. Completely. Completely. And it's worth noting that Charlie's radio show was at least indirectly responsible for, you mentioned Graham Parker. Yeah. So, so he played, Charlie played his first demos. That, that sounds and like he played the like... first demos by Elvis Costello. Wow, wow. Like, you know, yeah. I mean, he had, he had a hand yeah. in, in so much success. He also put on those great shows on Clapham Common. That's right. Where I played football with Charlie. <laughs> so this is my last memories really of Charlie are sometime in the naughty you know, he ended up... I mean, he was nearly 60 years old and still playing football with people not just half his age, a quarter <laughs> of his age, running around with this motley group of Africans and Latin Americans. Right. 
uh, he just was... Ex- what, what was his position? <laughs> Defence. He, he never crossed the halfway line. He was like the... Who was the great AC Milan? Beresi. He was the Franco Beresi okay. of Captain Common. And, but he was really... He was still incredibly fit yeah, at yeah. the age of 60. And, um, yeah, fabulous. I just So he notes also in this Brinsley Schwartz piece, he says, met Robert Christgau of The Village Voice, who told us he is the best rock writer in the States. <laughs> and Vince Saletti, a modest R&B critic for Crawdaddy and other papers, who digs Sly and Jerry Butler and writes well about them. Good. Isn't that nice? So Christgau is just forever telling everyone that yeah, he's the best. He's the dean, the self, self-anointed or appointed dean of American rock critics. Shall we tell us a little bit about the Johnny Allen audio? Yeah, I mean, this is coinciding with the 78 stiff yeah. release, and um, he, he, he's he's over here promoting it. Cliff White does the interview, and he talks very much about the place where he comes from. I mean, he's from Lafayette. He's a regional hitmaker. He said his first single, Lonely Days and Lonely Nights, actually had some traction nationwide, nationally, yeah. but that was the end of that. He said he occasionally played as far away as Florida or as Texas, but essentially he was a local guy playing local clubs. And he doesn't seem to mind that very much, No, no I, I, very I, sort of he's very open ha- about the fact that he's happy to at least be having regional success. Absolutely. He's, he's also very interesting about that whilst his music had Cajun elements, it wasn't pure... Cajun music. Definitely not. And that he'd get booked into bars and then not booked again because he wasn't authentically Cajun enough. Mm. That, that, that we're talking about a white francophone community, essentially, who are very, very cut off and quite inward-looking and kind of isolated. We must listen to that clip now where he talks about precisely that, about you know what constitutes real Cajun music and his place in that. There are uh, 10 or 12 nightclubs in the Lafayette area, in Acadiana, that specialize in that. I mean, (laughs) just as such an example, we played in this uh, nightclub called the Cajun Cajun Club, you know, (laughs) between Abbeville and Kaplan. This was on a Friday night. So the guy booked me for like... uh, five, six months from that date, on a Saturday night. Well, the guy calls me back up about two weeks later and says, hey, man, there's no way in the world you're coming out here on Saturday night. I says, why? He said, the people would run me out of here. He says, they want authentic Cajun music on Saturday night. He says, they don't want to even hear of anything else. Mm. And I mean, there, there's a place uh, oh, about a mile or so from my house called Webb's Neighborhood Lounge nightclub. I mean, it's not really loud. It's a nightclub. Yeah. It's strictly Cajun music. That's where you'll see these uh, people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, up in the 80s. You know, some of them walk in there with a walking cane. <laughs> <laughs> when they get at the door, they'll hang up the walking cane and boy, the music, that, the minute that, that music cracks up, they're up and at it. South to Louisiana to the town of Thibodeau That's lovely. Um, I mean, it's interesting. Cliff White, who's really kind of basic soul specialist, he's slightly out of depth in terms of his Mm. music. He doesn't really, and he's open about that. But he lumps uh, Zydeco, which is the black sort of version of music, with Cajun music as the same thing, which they kind of are and they aren't. So they have similarities. A lot of use of accordion and things like that in Zydeco washboards and so on and so forth. Zydeco is clearly bluesier. 
Yeah, Clifton Chenier and Exactly, others, yeah. for, for very obvious reasons. That sort of leads to a conversation, a slightly rose-tinted view of race relations in Louisiana. That's the way I, I read it. You know, he, he kind of... Johnny claims that things are a lot better than they used to be. Well, in fact, history has proven that that's really not necessarily the case. I mean, they can be better and still be awful. Uh, well, 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 quite. He talks about... He's asked, you know, do, can French people understand Cajun people speaking French? He said, well, they can, but you know, it, it is, it, it's very different. It is it's quite different, I think. It's, it's quite a different language. Is it worth just quickly explaining what Cajun music is and who the Cajun people yeah, were? Yeah, Cajun, which is a, comes from Arcadian, which were originally French who came from... was basically driven out of Canada and... Went down the because coast. they refused to count out to the British. That's, that's right. They were kicked out of Nova Scotia, and they went to New to the region around New Orleans, where they were kind of welcomed because New Orleans itself was a French place originally before it was actually bought by the American government. Napoleon had to sell it, that's indeed, right. because he had yeah. tried to. Mm. There's the Haitian Revolution had cost him so much money because he was such a fool about trying to you know, reimpose slavery on the Haitians. How and he then ran out of money and had to sell New Orleans yeah. to, yeah. That's great. Thank you, Jasper. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's a yeah. very, very useful history lesson. So so they they settled, they settled not so much in New Orleans itself, though they did settle in New Orleans. But in the bayous but in, and the it, small towns it, it, around. It, exactly. Around they retained their language, as you say, becoming the sort of slightly pigeon version of French, uh, you know, over time. They did absorb a lot of the local black culture in many respects. Mm. They brought with them accordions and things which are essentially French instruments yeah. or instruments. You know, and, you... in the, and in the strictly Cajun music, of course, there were fiddles yes. as well. Yes. And uh, washboards, as uh, you say. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a kind of... It's dance music, first of all. I mean, Saturday night music. And the bon ton roulé. Absolutely. Saturday night music. Very up-tempo, lots of accordion, lots of powerful rhythm. And that is something that Johnny Allen took from it. You know, he wasn't a pure Cajun... um, And he talks about how, you know, at high school he was sort of very much pure Cajun music, and then he sort of suddenly heard rock and roll and was like, oh, this is... He saw Elvis on, appropriately, the Louisiana Hayride right, yeah. And and that's going to turn a young man's mind. Yeah, absolutely. He played lap steel in a Cajun band. Yeah, exactly, Um, yeah. He talks about the southern states versus the northern states, and the... You get this powerful sense of listening to him, and it's actually rather lovely speaking voice. I really Beautiful. enjoyed listening to it. Mm. That he is a Louisiana native mm. and nationalist in a sense. I mean, he, you know, he, he's pleased to be in England promoting this record, but it was so out of his experience. Yeah. Mm. You know, this is a guy who normally wouldn't play further than 20 miles from his yeah. home, mm. and yeah. suddenly he's in London promoting this record. So, yeah, and he, and he talks about Promised Land itself and it being reissued and his excitement about that. He talks about stage act. We'll, we'll play a clip at the, end of the, at the end of the podcast, which is kind of very amusing about, you know, playing in front of those kind of quite tough audiences yeah. in, the, these, in these bars out in the sticks. That's right, uh, yes. Out in the boondocks. Yes, you know. he talks about singing Land of a Thousand Dances yes. and inviting people... To sing along. To sing along. <laughs> but then there's some guys sitting there... You, <laughs> you don't. Know, serious Cajun guys. And maybe maybe I won't ask yeah. him. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's great. It's interesting as well that a lot of the Cajun singers who were trying to make it a little bit outside of that space yep. changed their names or basically dropped the French parts of their names. Johnny Allen had a French surname That's... and other people also kind of refigured their names in order to try and, you know, at least so that disc jockeys could pronounce their names <laughs> yes. on air. But basically... I'm, I'm, what's interesting is that 
their black equivalents to Zydeco artists had been discovered as part of the rediscovery of blues people by the Lomaxes and the likes and such who would go down to the south and find artists. So we in this country were much more aware of the black artists, of the Clifton Chinese, the Rock and Doopses of this world, yeah. than we were of the white Cajun stuff. And that's what Charlie Gillop found. Interesting. Was, was as much as anything was the white stuff, you know, mm. which just had never left Louisiana in any sort of significant way. Yeah, um, completely. I mean, of course, we were aware of New Orleans music, Dr John, Alan Toussaint, the meters that we talked about the other week, all of that sort of stuff. But this rural... Yeah, and it's worth noting there is quite a big difference, actually. I mean, not just musically, but culturally and, yeah. you know, in terms of the cuisine, Cajun and Creole are two Very separate yeah. things in, in, in many respects. Yes. Well, of course, because they're geographically close to each other, they have shared elements, yeah. but they come from slightly yeah. different I mean, it's worth historically noting that even in the slave south before the Civil War, New Orleans was a remarkably integrated city and actually became less integrated after the Civil War. Yeah. That the failure of reconstruction had particular ramifications on, on, on Louisiana and New Orleans in particular mm, as a city. Mm, mm, anyway, mm, so it's mm. a very nice interview, mostly about what we've already described as one of the great rock and roll tunes. Absolutely. I'd just like to finish, before we move yeah, on yeah, to sure. library highlights, just, just this little... Among the other tributes that came in when Charlie died 10 years ago was from Dave Lewis, editor of the Led Zeppelin fanzine Tight But Loose. And it just, again, it's just, it's classic Charlie. You know, you just didn't mess with this guy. So Dave said he once inadvertently took on the might of Peter Grant. He wrote a piece in the NME about singles and Led Zeppelin's resistance to them, while at the same time singling out the fact that Zeppelin were a force to be reckoned with. Grant misread this as criticism of his boys and took umbrage and wrote a complaining letter in the following week's NME. With typical candour, Charlie replied, perhaps Led Zeppelin would like to tell me what they'd like to have written about them. (laughs) (laughs) So that's Charlie Gillett, marking 10 years since we lost Charlie and 50 years since the brilliant Sound of the City was published. That's right. I think I'll have to read that. Oh, it's, 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 it's a great one. It really is. It's, it's the Bible of kind of early rock and roll scholarship. Yeah. Well, tell us what's new in the library. What's new in the library? We'll start off with kind of Peter Noon, the Herman of Herman's Hermits. Or Peter No One. Peter No One. <laughs> <laughs> this is an interview by Chris Welch, Melody Maker in 65. And he just comes over as an impossible tit. Uh, <laughs> uh, he, he, he comes up and he's like, to all the R&B fans, I'd like to say, I think the Holmes Hermits are definitely the only true R&B group left. Oh, that's how <laughs> I've thought, always thought of them. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. If, if they want an example, since all the protest, anti-cigarettes and God in Henry VIII, I mean, the mind's mind boggling. Like, uh, and I do it all without the age of pills or drugs, just coffee and coke. <laughs> It, oh, yeah, no no yeah. drugs there. It turns out... <laughs> think he meant... He basically... No, Pete, Peter Noon actually basically ended up living in America. And it turns out he became friends with Alex Chilton. Peter uh, I, I know, it's absolutely... Uh, after actually, I po- nothing would surprise me I about po- Alex I, Chilton. I posted that quote on Facebook as a quote of the day. And two or three people responded saying that, actually, he became friends not just with Alex Chilton, but some other really interesting people. 
I know. Which, uh, is, he's you know, gone up in my estimation. He's, <laughs> he's no longer no one. Yeah. He's, got, he's someone. He's, he's Peter someone. It's <laughs> a double barrel name. Peter someone. High moon. Uh, <laughs> but so anyway, it's, 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 it's fairly hilarious stuff. Great. Eden and KRLA Beat. She's just running through the singles that have just come out or recently been released. And it's interesting because this is from December 66. And she just picks on a couple of things. She says, Gene Clark has gone from group birds to group Gene Clark, to solo singer himself. His first solo effort is a beautiful ballad entitled Echoes, a beautiful thought-provoking lyric and lustring arrangement add up to a possible first hit total for Gene. Now, you're a big Gene Clark fan, aren't you? I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's very nice to read at the time someone saying this is a really, really good record. Yeah, and it was a great record. I mean, actually, it is sort of untypical of what Gene Clark did. It's quite a sort of lush, mm -hmm. what you might almost call baroque right. California pop yeah. thing with these arrangements, I think by Leon Russell. Oh, right. The arrangements. right. So right. there's, I think there's even an oboe in there <laughs> and the strings. Very, it's, you know, it's yeah. very much of its time. Was it a huge, I don't think it was a no, huge no. hit. But um, I mean, you know, this is him striking out yeah. as a, as, you know, we, we talked about him before in the podcast about how he was a really important part of the early birds, so that he defined as a writer and... In oh, their greatest ways. songwriter, so, yeah. in The my early opinion. birds yeah. get the worm, no. <laughs> Steady on, Jasper. She also writes, Eden writes, in this, uh, written in about 10 minutes, recorded almost immediately, and now well on its way up the charts, is the Buffalo Springfield's second release, for what it's worth. You'll have to listen to this one for a while before you really feel it, but it's definitely worthy of the top 20 lists. As she says, written in about 10 minutes, this is written in response to the Sunset Strip riots, which had happened literally just only about a month before... This, this article mm. comes out. Mm. So it's a very, very quick release mm. about a specific event. It's just in, it's in, historically yeah. interesting stuff. It was Stephen Stills responding to the threatened closure of this tiny little club mm -hmm. called Pandora's Box. Right. You know, they were, it, it wasn't like they were protesting about, you know, Important anything things. unimportant like <laughs> like persecution or ethnic or... minorities or anything. <laughs> Their little club was going to be closed yeah. and, and they all marched down the streets. Yeah. And the heavy handed helicopter. This is kind of it's, a, it's this sort of instant agit prop on the back of folk protest, isn't uh, it? Absolutely. Uh, and Stills did literally mm -hmm. write it very quickly and I think it was recorded very quickly. Yep. Armas Erskine said, go in the studio, yep. record it. And I mean, do you think it's a great record? I've always record. had reservations I, I, about it. I, I, I kind of like it. It's Sonically, it's quite nice. There's some nice guitar parts. What's the opening line? Something's happening here. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's bullshit. It is kind of bullshit. <laughs> it's Stephen Stills bullshit. Uh, uh, you know, it, it could have been David Crosby bullshit. The, the, you know, yeah. the, the sort of the, the size of the heads expanding all around. Yeah. But it is interesting, KRLA Beat is very interesting in that they really covered those riots. There were about two or three nights of it. Yes. Um, and there were letters pages full of it. They would then interview kids about their attitudes. It was kind of an interesting time. I think Neil Young was actually bundled into the back of a, of a police car. I should hope so. Or van <laughs> and, and, and taken down yeah. the local Nick. But I always think that Neil Young's equivalent to, for what it's worth, Ohio, mm. which was also like written in 10 minutes. That's right. I, I think he's, you know, infinitely more powerful record. About a slightly more important event. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Probably has something to do with it. <laughs> yeah. There's something happening here. 
But what it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Moving on to 1973, Brian Ferry, our old friend here in the Rock's Back Page. He's not getting off of Bar and Ferrari. Bar and Ferrari, yes, Ferret Biryani. <laughs> Being interviewed by actually the marvellous Ray Fox Cummings, is one of our writers I'm really coming to enjoy. Calling we all enjoy his name for a start. Well, and we do. He was very early kind of, you know, pro sort of the Mott Hoople Bowie sort of yeah. stuff, you know, and Lou Reed and people like that. But this is Brian Ferry. Uh, he says, Brian was once quoted as saying that with each album, he started with the cover and worked inwards. Was that going to be true of the third? The idea comes first, and the cover then has to express the idea. You have to find the right chick for it. Oh, oh Brian. Oh, you know, the chick word. The, the chick word. It's, it's, well, it's, it's interesting because I'm not sure if Eno's actually left the band when this interview takes place. It's, it's 73, it's, so he might have just, just left, because ju- obviously he's not on Stranded. That's right. But <clears throat> it might be in yeah. that transitional moment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Moving on to Enemy 1977, one of my favourite writers, Brian Case, interviewing Stan Getz. He says that, much to his surprise, Stan was really quite a nice guy to talk to. Stan Getz has a really bad reputation. Has a very bad reputation, I mean, yeah. Ronnie Scott's joke Great about doing, joke. doing his back in, bending over backwards for Stan Getz, you know. But... You know, Stan Getz is, is an articulate, you know, pretty interesting guy. He says, all music, all art forms must have a logic form and content. You can't let it all hang out. You've got to be selective. That's his anti-free jazz take. Right, you know. a bit reactionary. He, well, you know, he, he, he was reactionary. I, mean, I, I love his tone. I think he's I think he's got a beautiful tone. Fabulous. I think he also gets slightly unfairly sometimes he's just seen as... The boss and yeah, yeah. guy, yeah, which yeah. I don't think is quite true. There's a really well, nice no, it's album. Good, it's completely untrue. Yeah. I mean, Bossa was actually a really quite small part of his, his, yeah. his yeah, overall of output. And there's a really nice record that he did with Jerry Mulligan, which I think is actually they're both you know on yeah, great yeah. form. They both have lovely tone. It's sure. just a nice straight ahead kind yeah. of. Do you know jazz remember record. what year that's from? I don't. Okay. Is it so six sixties or earlier? Uh, he's, he's also the, the, maybe fifty nine because he had this. He and Ben Webster probably have the two most unique sounds of all tenor players, and they aren't a million miles from each other. No. He says, "The older you get, you realise it's not the mouthpiece; it's you that you're fucked up in your head. You want something that's not there." He used to go to the mouthpiece manufacturers and literally come instruct them how to carve his mouthpieces. Yeah, well. That's an interesting quote. He says, electricity takes the sound out of the saxophone, the human sound, the breath. You hear electricity. No, it's articulate He's he's, he's an interesting guy. And I think Brian Case, expecting to be given a really hard time, actually had a really rather enjoyable chat with him. And and Brian Case, who had previously been very critical, particularly the Bossanova stuff, which he thought was ridiculous, I think came away from this interview with a much more respect for Stan Getz than he was expecting to. Did Getz... Played quite a lot in London in that era. Fact, he, he certainly did, did play at Romney's. This, quite this took place at the, uh, his his flat in London. He oh, had, yeah. a, oh, he had, he a, had flat. a flat yeah. in okay. London. Interesting stuff. Mm. Talking about electricity taking the sound out of the saxophone, a guy called Ken Kalett, who's actually Fleetwood Mac's kind of co-producer around this time, on the introduction of digital recording, interviewed by Jim Sullivan for the Boston Globe in 81. 
And this is the moment when everyone thought that digital recording was absolutely the future, that it was inherently the best way to record. And he says, basically what you'll get from the time you put a microphone in front of an instrument until the person at home listens to it should be identical. Now, in this piece, Jim Sullivan is actually kind of quite interestingly critical of what he's heard in terms of pop music. He says, clearly in clap with classical music, there's a case for digital recording. But he and other people he talks to feel that when you start multi-tracking, which you don't with classical music, mm-hmm. most classical music recorded straight to stereo, when you start multi-tracking with digital things don't sound quite right. And this is 1981, he's, he's saying this, which is pretty, pretty, pretty advanced. Early, yeah. It's before compact discs. So, in fact, they, yeah. we're talking about vinyl pressings of digital re- recordings. Rai Kuda's Bop to Drop, which I think from the year before, year before that, was, was the very it first... Was 79. 79 was yeah. the very first pop record That's recorded right. digitally. They made a big deal about they made a, it, didn't they? It, it's, it's, you know, on the liner notes said, this yeah. is recorded entirely. Well, there's a sticker, I think, on the cover. Well, there are a lot of yeah. digitally yeah. recorded stickers yeah. on pressings yeah. from a certain time. Right. Ry now completely dismisses that yes. record. He says he thinks it's a horrible-sounding record. Yeah, he's very anti He really is. And, you know, whilst now there is a huge revival in this country in particular, well, actually, no, not just in this country, in America very much too, of analog recording techniques, even going back to reusing tape and so on and mm. so forth. I think, actually, digital recording has been cracked. I think that that, that over... It's taken a long time, I and mean, we're talking about 30, 30 almost 40, about 40 years, 35 years, but I don't listen to music recorded digitally and wince in a way that actually I did back in the 80s and in the 90s. Two things. I mean, first of all, CD releases have got much better. Remastering for, for digital from analogue sources has become so much better than it used to be. Mm. But also, just the software that we're recording, um, digital recording now is done in the computer, not on a tape machine. These were like 32-track digital tape machines that they were oh, doing okay. back then. Yeah, a bit different. Um, it's, it's very different. And also, the way in which people have managed it in computerized sense, emulate analog equipment and so on and so forth. Uh, I think digital sounds sounds pretty good now, you know, but it took a long time to get there. Mm. You can definitely make it sound good, and I think you, know, you also computing power is just so much greater these yeah. days that, that you have a lot more headroom that you can create on a, uh, uh, on a digital recording than uh, uh, probably you could, just technologically speaking, previously. I think that's right. I mean, you know, the, the digital domain has just evolved so much that, that inevitably things are going to get better, from, like, the quality of digital reverbs to the actual recording. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm, awesome. Mm-hmm. Sorry about that digression into some of the more <laughs> tedious aspects of record production. Geek speak. Geek speak. Musician 1983, the wonderful Carol Cooper interviewing our very own Eddie Grant. Eddie Grant's a really interesting guy. I mean, he was a pioneer black musician in Britain in the end of the 60s with his band Equals. Then he set up his own label, did all kinds of things. It's been a fight for him, a struggle, but he did very well. And at this point, he's now... Living in Barbados, he's got his own studio there and so on and so forth. He says, if anyone asks if there was ever a black man in the English music industry who tried and even overcame most of the obstacles, they can say yes. To me, just to be able to live and create can be the biggest slap in the face for a man who's against you. He's a, he's a tough guy, yeah, Teddy Grant. Sure. You know, and I have a lot of time for him. I don't yeah. love his music, but I have a lot of time for him as an individual. Mm, yeah. he's, he's really interesting. Absolutely. To another... Talking about black guys as Roachford. 
It's, it's Roachford. I was going to call it after my full name, Andrew Richard Sylvester, but those initials are too dodgy. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. It's That's this um, interview by Max Bell from Number One in 89. It's, it's, it's very nice. I mean, I never loved Roachford, cuddly toy and things like that. But he was of this group of black British artists who really liked hard rock. You know, we never... We, I remember once I was asked to maybe possibly write some songs with Pauline Henry who had been in the band called The Chimes. She wanted, at that point, to be a hard rock singer, to be a rock and roll singer. Right. Huh. It's never talked about, but that was there, and Roachford's part of that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we just never would never occur but, to us, would it? Jasper and I both really love Cuddly Love Cuddly Toy. Toy. We do. We it's just a banger. It. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's so funny. It's, I, there's that great scene, which is how I think you introduced it to me, from the film... Alpha Papa. Alpha Papa with... It's one of Steve, Steve Coogan's, Coogan's greatest moments. He's at the wheel so of his brilliant. sort of ghastly, you know, Alfa Romeo or Jaguar or whatever it is, with, with the, the really creepy driving gloves yeah, on. Yeah, horrible leather <laughs> And he puts on Cuddly Toy and he sort of mimes to it and... and He's, it's so brilliant that it's almost glorious. It's Fantastic. almost so funny. It's almost it's a magnificent yeah. thing yeah, to watch. It's, isn't it? it's, it's absurd and grotesque, but he does it so beautifully that it is like a homage <laughs> to this track. Yeah. I did see Roachford play at the Marquee when Cuddly Toy yeah, yeah. was was a hit, and they didn't have much going on beyond that track. Right, but he's still back. He's actually back this week. Yes. With a, I think he's got a new album coming out soon, and there's a, the lead track off it is a duet with Beverly Knight. So, Andrew Richard Sylvester Roachford, uh, I think, <laughs> was it his full name? Yeah, is he's still he's still going strong and probably still doing great versions of Cuddly Toy. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I do love that years later, it's the fabulous Stephen Wells interviewing Nicky Six and Mick Mars of Motley Crue. Motley Crue. And they do come up with the usual bullshit. I mean, Mick Mars says, I mean, look at me. If you were a chick, would you think of I was a fucking sexy? Would you want to fuck me? I wouldn't. No, 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 wouldn't. no. And, and Nikki Six says, never been interested in, hey, baby, let's do it all night long. More like, let's get it over with and order a ham sandwich. <laughs> but, uh, That's quite endearing. But really. the one interesting thing is that they oh. are they are appalled by Guns N' Roses lead singer, whose name entirely escapes. Axel, Axel Rose. Rose. Axel Rose. Coming out with W. Axel Rose. Waxel. 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 Waxel Rose. Coming out with the, the homophobic stuff that he did. And, he's, yeah, and, uh, and, and, and Six says, It sounds fucking weak, I know, but I ain't going to start putting down black people who are homosexuals just to be shocking. Well, it doesn't sound, it doesn't sound, doesn't weak. sound weak. It sounds no. actually pretty ballsy. No, no, quite. Last piece, 95, is Simon Reynolds interviews John Oswald for The Wire. Barney, you turn me on to his Grey Folded, which is about 100 versions of the Grateful Dead's Dark Star stretched and morphed and imposed on one another. This, this, mm. this, 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 this extraordinary recording done with... It has to be out with the permission of the Grateful Dead. Yes, cool. I mean, um, Dark Star is one of my favourite... Uh, one of my favourite bands is the, li- the Dead Live in sort of 68, 69. I just sensation, good at times. You know, they could be awful, but they could be brilliant. But this is a really, really interesting use of 
modern technology, mm. essentially sampling, to produce this. Now, before it's, it's a very interesting interview. Before Grey folded, he had done this thing called Plunderphonics, yeah. where he had taken a lot of different pop songs and sort of just pulled them apart and done all kinds of stuff using these techniques. He had then been hit with a kind of lawsuit from the various copyright holders. He had released it as a non-profit CD. 700 had been sold and he had to get rid of... He had to destroy the rest and destroy the masters. Really? It was a constant court order. Apparently you can get it because those 700 got out and people then subsequently nice. copied it. I like that. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, you know. yeah. But he's a really interesting guy, John Oswald. You know. I, I seem to remember commissioning John Savage to review Grey Fault right. for Mojo when I was when I was the re- reviews editor. I didn't know much about John Oswald at all, but Savage expressed an interest. Yeah, yeah. And I do remember playing it a lot and finding it absolutely fascinating. Yeah. What an interesting idea I, for a record. I mean, as you say, literally... What dozens, if not hundreds, hundreds. of versions of Dark Star. He went from to, all from all different. He eras. went to the Dead Zone archive, yeah. and just pulled out from right, right yeah. through. From, he plundered. He from, plundered from, plundered from, from like sixty-eight right up to ninety-one, ninety-two. Yeah. Different live live recordings. And there's one bit where he piles so many on top of them and then squeezes them, so yes. the whole thing is like a single bang. Yeah, you know, but made up of yeah all these Copies layers. Of dark stuff. You really yeah. listen to it, Jasper. Yeah, I, mean, I will. I think you find it really, really interesting. interesting. It's I mean, it's also the whole plunderphonics thing. There are still people doing that that sort of thing, yeah. not just mashing up two pop records, but really kind of taking elements from you know ten, Several. fifteen mm. records yeah. and kind of creating this whole new thing with it. There yeah. are a few people out there doing that, and I think you know it's got a lot easier to do that with. A, technologically speaking, yeah. but also the internet, you know, it's so impossible to shut anything down these That's days. Right. That people can just go and do it. Yeah. And and actually, people have started to realise that it's probably beneficial to a record to become popular in other ways rather than trying to, you know, sure. claim copyright and say, oh, this yeah. is, you know, this isn't allowed or whatever. Right. Um, you know, he says in this piece that he didn't get much feedback back from the dead, but that's because Garcia just died and they're too busy sort oh. of dealing with mm. Garcia's death. Tom well, Con- yes, because it's 95. Yeah. Uh, he died in 95. Yeah. yeah. Constantin, Tom Constantin, the keyboard player who's on the original Dark Star release, got in touch saying how much he, he liked it. But I like the fact that the dead gave him permission to do this. Yeah, the, the, that's know, definitely I, to their credit. Very much so. It's, a, it's an interesting piece. Um, yeah. I really recommend, if you can, is find Grey Folded. I think yeah. it's on Spotify. I think it, I think it's there. And have a listen. It's it's a very, very interesting thing. Mm. That's my lot. Jasper, what have you got for us? What have I got? Just a couple of things. First of which is Missy Elliott live in Birmingham. Excellent. Stephen Dalton goes to see Missy in October 2006. And it's a sort of mixed review. Mm-hmm. I think basically the show had really great elements because Missy Elliott is really great. Yeah. But also there was a lot of sort of around it and there wasn't you know there were sort of extended Tina Turner karaoke bits and it it just sort of didn't really kind of come together for every sense jolting show-stopping anthem such as get your freak on there were two or three cheesy dance routines and banal generic audience boosting chants Mm -hmm. admittedly the floor show was dynamic and energetic but no substitute for Elliot's avant-garde beats and beaming charisma right and Stephen Dalton also points out that it is remarkable that Someone like Missy Elliott, who is so has such a broad canvas of different musical ideas that she uses, mm-hmm. 
for her to be the biggest female rapper kind of of all time is, is actually a really interesting thing because yeah. she's done such a broad variety of different things. Yeah. I mean, uh, her career sort of hit a sort of peak around 99, 2000, would that fair to say? Sort of went off the boil. and then she, But she has come back with interesting releases. Yeah. I'd say her album's always really patchy, but I th- I'd say mm. the same about a lot of current R&B artists. I mean, I think that, let's say, Lizzo's an exception, is that her last album is actually pretty much fabulous all, yeah. the, way, all the way through. And, in fact, has Missy Elliott on it. And yes. has Missy yes. Elliott on I mean, obviously, that Missy Elliott has also been a huge encouragement to someone yeah. like Lizzo. Sure. Um, I, I like her enormously. Mm. I mean, I, I've always loved I think reading she's a great character. Absolutely. There's something terribly, immensely likeable and, tri- and lovely about her. Yeah. I wish I liked her stuff. I mean, more. but get your free comments. It's great, fantastic. Record. I love the first three albums. I mean, I thought they were incredibly funky yeah. and smart and funny. And she was just different. Yeah, she was very eccentric. She seems to have really taken a bit of a backseat, really, yeah, yeah, over, yeah. over the last yeah. few years. I think we're still waiting for a new album. She did come out with a fantastic single a year ago, about about a year ago, right? Which was really great, and there was a fan, great video with it. It's all on YouTube and so on and so forth. It is hard for all R&B artists or hip-hop artists to sustain careers. It's mm. just the nature of the beast. Yes. There's an enormous churn. Mm, you know, yeah. Artists are lucky if they've got three years of kind of real productive it work. It is very much, what have you done for me lately? If what they, did you do for me last week? Well, exactly. You know, um, <laughs> she's also, I think, she got into the business of mentoring other people or producing other yeah. people. She, even though she uses outside producers, on those first three albums, there are a number of outside producers. Well, Timberland, yeah, most Timberland, famously, yeah. Particularly. She is able to assert her personality, musical personality, as well as vocal personality, in everything that she does. Oh, God, yeah. So, We Love Missy is the yeah, summary. Holla, holla. People sing around, now people gather around, now people jump around. Next up, Clean Bandit. <laughs> Bit of a bit of a sort of lateral move, but Clean Bandit live at Shepherd's Bush Empire here in London, of course, around the corner from here. Caroline Sullivan goes to see, and they're a sort of electro dance, but with classical flourishes. They're sort of a string group. They're a four piece yeah. from they met at Cambridge University, and they make worse and dance worse, I'm records. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, more and yeah. more. Yeah. <laughs> Good news <laughs> is you don't have to hear them in order to hate them, Mark. <laughs> they make sort of dance records, but with strings. Is the beginning and the end of what they do. I mean, Caroline Sullivan it seems to enjoy it. It gets sort of three out of five stars. It's sort of like mixed kind of review. Mm-hmm. It's a bit, it's a bit strange. The fusioneering can go astray. Rihanna, a tale of getting jiggy while listening to her records, and UK shanty evoke the hooked on classics, classical disco era. And Mozart's house has a hoedownish madness not dissimilar to Switzerland's Eurovision entry. It's all a bit random. <laughs> Moreover, this sold-out gig proves that a band can't choose their fans. Up in the balcony, the teenagers drawn by Rather Be, played as a fierce double-dip encore with a cover of Robinette's house anthem, Show Me Love, are shunted by a crew of rugger types who look like continuing a party that started at Prince Harry's pad. Oh. oh. Yeah, well, the way you describe their music, it doesn't entirely surprise me. No. They attract rugger buggers. Rugger buggers. Rather, <laughs> rather, rather Be was a massive, massive hit right. and a record that... As a pop record, I actually quite like, okay. but the rest of it is pretty sort of middle of the road. Pop. Big act. Big act, yeah, yeah. Huge act. I mean, you know, the, the same kind of time as Disclosure and Rudimental were becoming a big thing in that sort of new UK house right. scene. But I don't we know. like Disclosure. We like Disclosure. Although they, I mean, their they first album was great, and then their other albums have been, again, I'd, I've not been super interested by their stuff. So it's a sort of. 
slightly anemic, anemic scene, well, I, yeah. I find. Mm. Anyway, although they did do a good record with Mary J. Blige. They did a record right. with her that was one of her better records, I think. Right. So interesting. I suppose that. we ought to listen to that at some stage. No? Why bother? OK. <laughs> We're too old for this. <laughs> Last of the things that I picked out was actually a piece that you added, Barney, which is Jack White, speaking of people who like analogue recording techniques. Yep. But I just picked it up because it's by Andy Gill in mm. The Independent, and I think he was mm. a great writer. And... The first line is, who does Jack White think he is? Well, judging by the cover to Boarding House Reach, a smoothly airbrushed simulacrum of Keanu Reeves, which rather <laughs> flatters both men in complimentary ways. <laughs> it's just a nice nice little bit of writing and funny sort of comparison to draw Great. between those two chaps. That's it from me. Well, thank you so much. Thank you both. This has been the Rocks Back Pages podcast. And, Mark, you're going to talk us out with the second clip from Johnny Allen. Yeah, well, this is, we, we talked about it earlier, so I'll keep this quick. It's about basically, you know, his stage act and how he works an audience and how he learn, knows who to avoid working with um, the <laughs> Great. audience. Great. We'll hopefully see you next week, although yes. that's all pending on... Yes, I mean, we are still here. We haven't been commanded to work from home, but we may all be self-isolating we may be. this time next week. Mm -hmm. So stay tuned. If this is the last episode for a little while, we hope you've enjoyed it. We will hope to be back soon, and we will see you then. Bye-bye. Bye. Lonely days or lonely nights, dear. I get the audience involved. Yeah. I find that uh, this this has been a key thing, you know, as far as the, the reception that we get in playing these nightclubs. The people expect, I believe they expect it of me now. Right. To get them involved in, you know, like we'll do a song and I'll walk off the bandstand, you know, off the stage and and just get somebody to sing the song. I'll yeah. just hand them the mic, you know, just shock the heck out of them, you know. <laughs> Here, you know, we'll do something like... Um, you recall the song Land of a Thousand Dance? Oh, sure. No, 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 no. And I, you know, I'll just hand the mic to somebody. Say, okay, here. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's saying that. Not me, no. Right. And all the other people around say, yeah, yeah, we want to hear him sing. Yeah. That kind of, you know, that kind of thing. And they really dig that. All right. But the whole uh, now, some places, some places I wouldn't dare walk off the stage and do that, you know. Oh, they're that tough. <laughs> you know, because I'll, I'll, I'll walk off and hand it. Uh, I have to. I have to be selective, and and I've learned, you know, you, after doing it for so many years, you have to learn your audience, mm -hmm. and I, I have to kind of study the audience before I go into this routine. You've got to watch, you know, I've got to watch who I can do this to and who I can't. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, like if this guy's sitting there looking at me like that, I don't dare do it. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> so you've learned that by. Hard experience. Though. Right. Yeah. That was Johnny Allen in conversation with Cliff White in 1978, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison-Bowie. The Rock's Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. Mark. Cut that out. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Shall we start again? <laughs>
<laughs> the whole episode. <laughs> <laughs> Hey everybody, this is Brian Reisman, host of the podcast Side Jams, which is now a proud member of the Pantheon family of podcasts. I've been a freelance entertainment journalist for 25 years now, and I often end up in conversations that go off on tangents. Suddenly you're discussing someone's outside passion or hobby, something you didn't know about, and it leads into revelations about their character and about their life outside of their art. I've often had to cut those details out because a story had a strict word count or a specific focus, so here... The entire focus of the podcast is just on their side jam or side jams. For example, Alison Chain's frontman William Duvall spent some time talking to me about reading history, which led him into talking about his public school education and how it was so terrible in high school that he actually managed to get into a private school for free so his life could take a different course. In this series of podcasts, you're going to be hearing my interviews with musicians of all different backgrounds and genres, talking about everything from surfing to collecting antiques to stargazing. I hope you enjoy Side Jams. Please tune in regularly, and I'll have a lot of interesting guests in store for you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.